0: Matthew chapter 12, which we are going to be talking a bit about rest. We talked last week about Jesus telling us to take His yoke upon us, to learn from Him, the gentle, the lowly one, and find rest for your souls. You know, in the Old Testament, When Solomon built the temple, and they finished they finished the temple. When they finished the temple, they put a sacrifice on the altar, and fire from God descended upon the temple, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, symbolizing the presence of God, that he had come to dwell with his people. But then you fast forward. And you read the book of Ezekiel, at this point, the people, the Judah, Israel had already been taken into captivity. Now Judah's been taken into captivity. The temple had been ransacked. And even though the temple had already been ransacked and burned and ruined by Nebuchadnezzar, Ezekiel makes a point to tell the people that the glory and the presence of God had departed from them. Because they, they had turned from Him. They had broken the covenant. And God sent them into exile and revealed to them that His presence no longer dwelled with them. That He had gone back up to heaven on the wings of the cherubim that resided over the Ark of the Covenant. And the presence of God and all the prophets up until the Messiah, never is it recorded that God came back the presence of God came back to them. Not until the Messiah comes. God with us, Emmanuel, the prophesied one who would be God with us. The presence of God returns to his people. Then the Messiah dies, he's crucified, he's buried, He rises from the dead and then ascends into heaven. Then we see it happening again, just like it happened in the temple. As the disciples are gathered in one place, the glory of God in the the fire, shaped like little tongues, descends upon His people. Just like fire had descended upon the temple and the glory filled the temple. So now here in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, fire descends upon his followers the followers of Jesus fills them making taking up residence in and among his people revealing his presence in the new temple the people of God the church but during the silent years of God in between Ezekiel the Messiah and really I mean this This really occurred throughout all Jewish history. It still occurs today. Um, But particularly within those silent years where God's presence was in heaven and not on earth, so to speak, the sects of the the Pharisees and the Sadducees was created. The people were not in Israel. There had been some people coming back, but there was no true king like there was before. There was no true prophet like there was before. The priesthood was all but worthless. Not to mention, God had already mentioned His presence was no longer in the temple. What good is it to offer these sacrifices? He already told the people, oh, that somebody would close the doors and stop offering all these sacrifices that I'm not receiving from you anymore because of your disobedience, because of your idolatry, you've turned from Me. But yet the people still come into the temple, they offer their sacrifices, they, do, they pray their prayers, they do their religious duty, even though the Lord had already made it clear to them that he's not accepting their, their offerings. But the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came in to fill a void that was among the people. By this point, they had been taken under Roman captivity. Roman government was presiding over them. They would not allow a king. They had set up their own governors that some people would call kings back in that day. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were there to create order among the people. Religious order. To help the people keep following the law of God as Moses had told them to. And it was right for them to do so because the Lord Jesus had not come to establish the new covenant yet. And honestly, we, have, we give the Pharisees and the Sadducees a hard time a lot, but at the very beginning, there was, there, was, there was good motives behind the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They wanted to lead the people when they were in their time of captivity again. <laughs> they wanted to help the people see and love the glory of God. They also wanted to establish order among the people so that they couldn't just do that which was right in their own eyes. But as time progresses, these Sadducees and these Pharisees, they piled tradition and rules among the people in the name of the Lord, but without the command or the approval of the Lord. In a way, the people were compensating for the lack of presence of God. And that's really historically, and even in our modern day, you find people doing this all the time. Perhaps you and I, I've, I've had experience with this. Perhaps you've had experience with this. I know I've done this. But you, sent, you, you want to feel like God is with you, you want to know the presence of God. But for some reason, you sense a void. So you try to fill that void with rules, with obedience, with traditions, with religious duties and disciplines, because you can't really sing the song, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take Him at His word, just to rest upon His promise." Just to know the saith the Lord, there's no sweetness in that because there's no rest in your heart. Because for years, we've just been trying to compensate for the lack of the Spirit in our lives by being good, by being right. And in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 1, we start to see the presence of Christ breaking forth in the darkness of what has been piled upon people, the miseries, the hardships, the the traditions, the rules, the obligations that have been piled upon the people. The law of Moses was hard enough in its own regard. But the Sadducees and the Pharisees had to compensate, right? Right? They were, all, they were exiles, in a sense, in their own country. And you still had the, the diaspora, the dispersed northern tribes, still out in the world, still had to return to the homeland. But they had to feel good about themselves. How do you do that? By taking things, matters into your own hands. Rules, obligations, things that make you feel right and holy. That's what the Sadducees and the Pharisees were laying upon the people. And it was a burden. It didn't help them at all. It crushed the nation because of the abuse of the religious leaders. And then Jesus comes in full of grace and truth. And He says to us, Come to Me, All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And then we dive into Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And this really springboards off of what he just said. Because we're going to hear a couple of stories that juxtapose the Messiah, who is the heart of God, expressed to us physically versus the religious leaders of His day. Matthew 12, verse 1, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to Him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law, how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means... I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name... The Gentiles hope. And if you were to give this, I don't like to title my messages, but if we were to give this, this message a title, I would call it, Piety Without Compassion is Empty. Piety Without Compassion is Empty. And let's look at the words of Jesus here in the teaching of Jesus, and the example of Jesus after we pray. Lord, give us your understanding, come upon us, give us sight that we may see, that we may not be those who have ears but do not hear. And Lord, I pray that there would be no ulterior motives in me or in the listeners, but Lord, that we might listen with pure ears, seeking to see what you have said, that we may trust in you, that we may follow you. May your word be precious to us and may we seek to follow it. To the ends of the earth. To the ends of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we saw at the end of the last chapter, chapter 11, that Jesus just taught the people to take His yoke upon them and thus experience rest in their souls. We talked about the great difference between the ways of Christ and what the Jewish population had been used to from the Pharisees. The Pharisees were harsh. They were merciless, they were hypocritical, full of exterior piety, decency, appropriateness, but empty of the love and compassion of the Father. Philip said to Jesus in John 14, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. To which Jesus replied, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The Father who dwells in me does his works. And throughout the life of Jesus, And in the death of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, we see the love and the compassion of the Father being made manifest to us in Jesus the Son of God. Just to to look through the Gospels, to see the life that Jesus lived, the teachings that He taught the justice that he brought forth, the mercy that he showed, the compassion that filled his every word and deed. You cannot help but to see the love of Jesus. And Jesus says in John chapter 14, if you're looking at me, you're seeing what I'm doing. You're, you're seeing the Father's works. You're seeing the Father's compassion. And it doesn't, even if you read through the law of Moses, I mean, this this was obvious even in the law. I mean, there were laws all throughout, this, all throughout the law. <laughs> For instance, there's, did you know that there's a law in the Old Testament that told the people, if you're out working in your field and you drop a piece of equipment on the ground, you're not allowed to pick it up again. Seems obscure, but then it's followed up by, so that if a sojourner, Or the poor come to glean in your fields, they will have something with which to glean with and get food for their bellies. Because a sojourner, they couldn't just stop at the nearest McDonald's. There wasn't stuff like that. The poor, they were everywhere. They relied upon the hospitality of God-fearing people. So throughout the law, things like that are woven. Like if you drop a sickle on the ground, sorry, you can't pick it up. You've got to go all the way back home, get another one, start your work again. That one has to stay there for the people who come by and need it. There were laws like that all throughout the Old Testament showing the compassion of God that He is trying to pass on to His people. Through the law itself. It wasn't just rules to keep because God likes us to have rules. No, that's not what the law is for. The law is for holiness and compassion. Even in the Old Testament where people talk about the harshness of a, of a cruel God. You see His compassion even in the law, but the people by and large missed it, especially the rulers. And today we're going to take a look at the Jesus that we serve, doing some works that would have been considered scandalous and sinful in His day. Not because Jesus actually committed sin. We must establish that. Jesus did not sin. If he had sinned, he would not be the spotless lamb of God who can take away the sins of the world. There are people who are saying Jesus didn't live a perfect life, he just, but he did set a good example. No, he lived a perfect life, and our salvation rests upon that fact. But by and large, in every generation, religious sects tend to overprescribe in terms of holiness. Have you ever felt like you or a loved one was getting over-prescribed medication? Like the doctor was telling you to take more things than you really feel like you actually needed? You look at your little pill container and it's just, it's bulging. You can't even close the lid anymore on it. You know, sometimes you, or at least somebody you know, has been in a situation like that. And really, I mean, studies do show that it is an epidemic in the United States that people are just being over-prescribed on medication. And we are taking way more than we actually need and it's making us sicker. But we're not here to talk about the problems of our nation and our medical industry. We're here to talk about the Scriptures. The religious leadership of Jesus' day were essentially over-prescribing religious duty requiring of people in the name of holiness what God did not actually command. People, you know, a lot of us, we know the term OCD, (laughs) obsessive-compulsive disorder. Now, we can be, you know, a lot of us can be obsessive-compulsive about some things. It doesn't necessarily mean we have a psychological disorder. We kind of use that term loosely. But people can be obsessive-compulsive about a great deal of things. Cleanliness, orderliness, safety, symmetry, Hoarders, essentially, psychologically, are, Oc- are struggle with OCD. <clears throat> In one way or another. But you know what? There's another one that people can be OCD about. OCD about sin and righteousness. And you think, well, we need to be. We, have to, we need to put forth utmost care and take a responsibility upon ourselves to be righteous. I'm not going to argue with that. But... Religious OCD can actually do a detriment to the gospel. In fact, when you look at the biography of Martin Luther, a religious OCD is actually what brought him to faith. Not because it was good for him to be OCD about righteousness, but did you know that Martin Luther, before he came to faith, he was a Catholic monk, and he would be in confession for hours upon hours every single day. Because he felt like every single thing he thought, every single thing he did or didn't do, it was all wrong. It was all filthy and it was missing something. So he was always in the confession booth, confessing and confessing for the littlest things to the point where the priest that was there at his church told him, stop confessing! These things aren't sins! <laughs> but Martin Luther told him, no, they are sin because I, I was not perfectly... Um, genuine and how I did this or my thought there wasn't perfectly fashioned in such a way that it brought the utmost glory to God. So I need to confess my lack of genuineness and sincerity. And in fact, you know, by that point the, the priest kicked him out of the parish and told him to go teach at a teach at a school <laughs> to go and go and teach students because maybe if he set his mind to the books he'd stop thinking about his sins. <laughs> And that's where he found Jesus. Should I say that's where Jesus got him? <laughs> because when he was searching the scriptures, he discovered the grace and the mercy and the compassion of Jesus Christ. I mean, before, he was so anal about even the slightest little alteration of thought. And... But then he came to realize that God loves him. And Jesus died to save sinners. And Martin Luther knew more than anybody else that he was a sinner. So he appreciated more than anybody else the love of Jesus. The love of the Father expressed to him in Jesus Christ. And he ate it up and became one of the leaders in the Reformation. And we... And people, we, we can all find potential implications, just like Martin Luther, in many places in the scriptures, to dis, to substantiate our disfavor for any sort of action or absence of action, whether in ourselves or other people. And, you know, I grew up in that. I grew up in that. I was like that. I was I wasn't quite to the extent of Martin Luther, but I was such a sad young man because I always was down on myself. I still struggle with that, always thinking, what I'm doing is, is not good enough. It's wrong. It's empty. It's worthless. It's not going to do any good. It's you know I'm missing the mark somehow. And I think we are, we we can all get there. I think we've all been there and know how that feels. And we can use passages like Exodus 19:12, where the people are told to set limits around the mountain so that the people don't touch it and die. That can be abused and used to set, used for people to legitimize a great myriad of rules and regulations that they put upon people that aren't really in the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says, abstain from the appearance of evil which has been abused to control people, to get people to do or don't do things that they think look like evil in their mind, or things that they were trained that look like evil. When really that passage has a translation issue, it should be translated, stay away from every form of evil. Um, but that passage has been abused to crush people by things that aren't even in the Bible. And Philippians 2.15 says, that your way may be blameless and innocent without blemish in a crooked generation. And that word blameless, Oh, I can blame you, so you're not blameless. I can point something out in you, so you're not blameless. You need to repent and do what I think you need to do. Because I'm pointing out something that looks like something that I don't like. And we can be abused by the Scriptures when we try to draw things out of their context, out of their purpose, to try to lay burdens upon people. We've been there. Perhaps we've known somebody who's like that. I mean all sorts of things that are in, that people do they're not in the scripture from requirements to use holy water for, to requirements to wear holy underwear <laughs> that's a real thing <laughs> that aren't in this it's not in the scriptures but people are this burden these burdens are placed upon people in the name of holiness but not under the authority of God and lack the compassion Of God and Jesus. But Jesus enters the scene here in which people have suffered for generations at the hands of the religious body that has overreached their proper authority concerning morality, bypassing what Christ, what the scriptures make clear in Romans chapter 14. If you want to look there really quick, Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Romans chapter 14, verses 1-4 through 4 say, As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. In other words, if you see somebody who's new in the faith, or has some sort of sensitivity in the faith, don't take advantage of that to make them believe the things that you want them to believe. Because maybe they have a void, maybe they have a hard past, and you look at them as an opportunity to get them to be formed into your image according to your opinions. Verse 2, One person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person only eats vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. In other words, let people be different than you. Everybody doesn't have to see things the way you see them. Not everybody has to have the same conviction that you have. Is there right and wrong? Sure, but here Paul gives gives. The possibility that the Spirit can indwell two different people who see a moral issue differently. And as long as the Scriptures don't cast judgment on the situation specifically, there's room for difference. Paul makes that clear. But then he says in verse 4, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or fall. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. He's making the point. We cannot overreach Our authority over people and treat people like they are, that they are answerable to us because they're not. People are answerable to God and we need to treat people as though they will stand before God because it is God before whom they will stand. They will will never stand under our real authority in a sense in a sense where they have to answer to you or to me for something that God resides over them for. and <clears throat> The religious people of Jesus' day have essentially tried to replace the presence of God, replace the Holy Spirit, and that they have treated their brothers and sisters as though they were responsible to them, as though they were their moral mediator rather than leading the people to God, to whom they must give account. We must take care that in all of our pursuit of holiness for ourselves, for our brothers and sisters, because we need to rebuke, we need to exhort, we need to edify each other in holiness, to stir one another up to love and good works. We must take care that in all of these things, we are pointing people to Jesus, Not trying to take them under our authority as though they were answerable to us. As though they had to agree with us in order for them to be right. Jesus himself finds himself under the microscope of judgment by the religious leaders concerning Sabbath regulations. Back to Matthew chapter 12. Let's read this story once again. Matthew 12, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Okay, so right now, the Pharisees aren't necessarily accusing Jesus of anything because Jesus isn't really the one doing this. It's the followers of Jesus that are doing this. Now a rabbi was, was responsible for his disciples in the Pharisees' tradition, in Jewish tradition. That's, it's still true. So the Pharisees come to Jesus and they said, Jesus, we see your, it's, a, it's the Sabbath day and your disciples are in the grain field plucking grain. That's not lawful. The Bible says not to do that. To which Jesus replies, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? and those who were with him how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence which is not lawful for him to eat nor for those who were with him but only for the priests or have you not read in the law how on the sabbath the priests in the temple profane the sabbath and are guiltless okay let's stop there now let's lay a foundation here real really quick if you like to follow me you can follow me but i'm going to just once i get to these passages i'm just going to read them exodus chapter 20 verses 8 to 11 let's establish an Old Testament law concerning Sabbath. He says, "'Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the Sabbath day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy.'" So the people were not supposed to do work. They were not supposed to, in, to hire anybody to do work. They weren't allowed to tell their kids to go out and, and you know, gather the bales. or They weren't allowed to put the yoke on their oxen and just you know, have them plow the field or anything. They were supposed to, it was supposed to be a solemn rest from work, from trying to gain for themselves. And that's really, we need to understand this, the foundation of the Sabbath that carries itself all the way into the New Testament into fulfilled in Christ is the Sabbath represented the people taking a rest from their work and relying upon God. Now in Exodus chapter 16 well let's Exodus 35, let's go there first. Exodus 35 verses 1 through 3 say Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. So we see here similar to what we just read in in, uh, Exodus chapter 20, but now it adds that if you work, you're going to die. You're going to be put to death. You're not even allowed to make a fire in your dwelling place. You're not allowed to build a fire. If you want to cook some bread, sorry, should have done that the day before. <laughs> in fact, we look at that in, in Exodus chapter 16. This is during the wilderness wanderings. Rules for the Sabbath or rule, rule, rules um, during their wilderness wandering. It says, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread. So that, this is talking about the manna coming from heaven, feeding the people while they're wandering in the wilderness. Moses said eat it today for today is a sabbath to the lord today you will fi- today you will not find it in the field six days you shall gather it but on the seventh day which is a sabbath there will be none on the seventh day some of the people went out to gather but they found none and the lord said to moses how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws see the lord has given you the sabbath therefore in the sixth day he gives you bread for two days Remain each one of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So, back in the wilderness wandering, God is establishing for the people that they're supposed to take a rest and that God would provide for them. I know you're not going out to gather. I know that you're not doing anything for yourself. I know you're not trying to, you're not being responsible people. But I'm telling you, that's the way I want it. Because you need to stop relying on yourself. You need to rely upon me. And I'm going to show you in the wilderness. That even though you're already having to rely upon me because I'm the one sending the manna from heaven, you're still going to rely on me again on the seventh day, on the day of solemn rest, on the Sabbath, because you're not even, I'm, not even, I'm not going to send it to you on the Sabbath day. And if you try and wait, if you try to go out and get it, you're not going to find it. Because I'm not, I'm not blessing your work on my, on my Sabbath. I'm blessing my work for you, and I want you to see it, by seeing how I provide for you even though you're taking a day off. So this says, all of this has gospel implications. God is not blessing your work, he's blessed his work. We enter into his rest and therefore he blesses the works of our hands. But that's what something we'll see later. Now, so in Matthew chapter 12:3, he references a story that we can see in 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, the story about David. Then He's running from King Saul. Saul is trying to kill him. David has a small band of men that's following him, and they've been wandering, running from Saul, unable to take care of themselves. David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech, came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now that, you know, David is kind of telling a fib here, um, but he doesn't want the priest to know that he's actually running from the king. Verse 3, Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread and whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken away." Now the law concerning this bread that the priest handed over to David was that this was for the priests. Only priests could eat this bread. Part of the sacrificial system actually provided for the priesthood because the priesthood did not have land to work. Uh, They were not given an inheritance in the land. Their inheritance was the law of the Word of God and the ministry of the Word of God in the temple. Um, So in order for them to eat while they were performing their duties, they they were allowed to they and they alone were allowed to eat what was sacrificed or the bread of the presence that was made on a regular basis throughout the day but you had to be a priest on duty in order to eat this David and his men were not priests on duty therefore it was unlawful for them to eat this however in this story Jesus is referencing this teaching the Pharisees that David was still blessed in his doings by God, even though he had done something that was unlawful according to the law of Moses. Now, we see here, did David sin here? Did David and his men sin because they ate this bread? Certainly, it was probably uncomfortable for some of them because they're there at the, you know, they're men of war, they've been, they're filthy, they're dirty. Yeah, they've kept themselves from fornication or from their wives, but they've been out in the wilderness, they stink, they're, they're not fit to be in the temple, or the tabernacle, I should say. So it was probably uncomfortable for some of them to be there, and then to eat this bread that was holy and dedicated. It was probably uncomfortable. But in this situation, it was kind of life or death, because they had no provisions. They've been on the run. They're tired. They're hungry. They probably haven't eaten for days. So David, in his compassion, he went there where he knew there was sustenance, and his compassion for the people said, you know what? The bread of the presence is for provision. Maybe we can take that and spread it around amongst the people. David, <clears throat> for the sake of compassion, and this priest for the sake of compassion. The priest could have said no to David. But this priest Ahimelech showed compassion among the, upon the people and giving them the bread of the presence, even though it was unlawful for them to give. Now, Jesus also references another situation, which this isn't really a story that I really want to take the time to read to you, but He also references in Matthew 12, verse 5, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Okay, so a little explanation here. In Leviticus 24, 8, and Numbers 28, 9, and 10, the priests are actually told to offer twice the normal burnt offerings on the Sabbath regularly. It's in the law that the priests were supposed to offer these sacrifices on the Sabbath. And Jesus is referencing this, that for hundreds of years, the priests themselves have been breaking the Sabbath by offering these sacrifices even though they're not supposed to do their business. I mean, that was the business of the priests. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees, don't you know that the priests are always breaking the, the Sabbath, but they're found guiltless because they're actually obeying the law and doing so. Now, is God telling them to sin in the law by making them profane the Sabbath? No, because the point is, the point is not the, <clears throat> the work. The point is the trust and the faith. That's, all, that's what the Sabbath was there to establish, faith in God, trusting God. Because you, I mean, think about this day. I mean, we live in a small farm town, but this is their whole nation. In a small farm town, you find real men, right, who are responsible, who get out, they work, they get their hands dirty, they have bloody knuckles, dirty, filthy hair, because they're out in the fields, and that is their life, that is, the, that is their identity. It's hard work. It's hard for them to take a day off. You know how that feels especially if you've been in the farming industry, it's hard to take a day off. Everything needs to work. Everything has to be taken care of. Animals, fields, you know, sometimes the weather's been horrible and Sunday is the one day that I can go and do this. It's hard to take a day off. It was not different for these people. It was always hard to take a day off in the agricultural industry. (laughs) But the people had to. It was in the law. Why? Because they needed to trust God rather than themselves. That's what the law was there for to establish. To establish a tradition of trust. So that the people could be ready to see it all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That was the point. The point was not that God just didn't want sacrifices to be made or work to be done. The point was faith. And in order for us to put our faith in Christ, we must cease from our works. That's biblical. That's what we see in in Hebrews chapter 4. Um, but verses 9 and 10. Hebrews 4, 9 and 10. I'm going to read that real quick just so you have a reference point. It says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his own works. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So therefore, let us strive to enter that rest, uh, which I think is a funny follow-up statement. Strive to enter rest. It just seems like a paradox. Um, But that's another sermon. Now we must see here that Jesus did not allow His disciples to sin what they did. They were not sinning in getting the grain because they were hungry. Because they, I mean, we learned from Jesus that He was pretty nomadic. He didn't work the land. He didn't really have a side business where He was making some income. He was constantly out traveling from town to town to town to town, fulfilling the work of the kingdom of God. And here the disciples are hungry and it's the Sabbath day. And since, you know, let's just read verse 6. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. He's, talk, he's not necessarily talking about himself. He's talking about his disciples. They are guiltless. And in fact, he might be implying hordes of people that have suffered under the hands of the Pharisees for years. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you have not condemned the guiltless. Because they would have had a heart of mercy. They would have seen the disciples of Jesus are hungry. They're famished. They've been following Jesus. I mean, their whole life, you know, the whole life for three years was like a big boot camp. <laughs> um, and they were guiltless. And he quotes here, Hosea chapter 6. And I want to back up a little bit in Hosea. You don't have to follow me. I'll read this to you. Chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. He starts out this little paragraph by saying in Hosea, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. So he's criticizing them. He's comparing their love to something that you see it for a second, but then you turn around You turn back and it's gone. That was like the love of the the people here. The love that was found in Judah and Ephraim. There was an appearance of it, but then before you know it, it's gone. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. Talking about cutting them down. Cutting them down. I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. My judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire love and sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. We see here the priorities of God on display. Fulfilled in Jesus Christ, because Jesus does not condemn the guiltless. Because He knows their need. He sees their need. They were not, in fact, they, they didn't kindle a fire. Okay, Maybe it would have been different if they had kindled a fire. But here they were just plucking grain off of these stalks and eating it. <clears throat> Because we are to find rest, and yet the Pharisees, even though, even though the uh, disciples are doing their work, are, are doing some work on the Sabbath. This work that they're doing was not actually condemned by Sabbath law. It wasn't in the Scripture. It was close. Abstain from the appearance of evil. The Pharisees may have said. Surely it looked like evil. I mean, the Pharisees, the religious rulers, pointed it out. They, they saw what they were doing and, like, oh, they're, they're not blameless. And they're abusing the law because they are not first coming at the law with the eyes of compassion and mercy, like God does. Why is it that Jesus, when approached by the Pharisees with an adulterer caught in the very act? An adulteress, I should say. How is it that Jesus could not condemn her? The the Pharisees knew they had Jesus. Jesus had to condemn her because the law states, if a woman or a man is caught in adultery, they must be killed. It's clear. But Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that they were compassionless. And the lesson that needed to be learned was not by this woman, even though she was guilty of sin, the lesson that needed to be learned was these Pharisees are just as condemnable as this woman. And in his great mercy, he said, one, he upheld the law. He did not say, no, don't kill her. He said, okay, whoever hasn't sinned, cast the first stone. He pronounced judgment on the woman for her sin. He allowed a stoning to happen. Under the, under the stipulation that those who participated were also guiltless. In his great wisdom, he just obliterated them. They thought they had him cornered. I just love to see the wisdom of Jesus. But his wisdom and his approach to even clear commands in the law is shrouded by compassion and by mercy and love and peace. And he tells the woman, does anyone here Condemn you. She said, no. He says, and neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So he admitted that she had sinned because he said, don't sin anymore. But he also told her, I'm not going to condemn you. Because I'm a God of grace and mercy. You are suffering at the hand of merciless and unjust rulers. And then we also see a distinction here. and This won't take long. And Starting in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 12. And he went on from there, and he entered their synagogue. And I think it's funny how it makes a point to say their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So the Pharisees see Jesus enter the room, and they take opportunity because they see this crippled man, and they ask Jesus, is it lawful to heal this man on the Sabbath? You who are full of mercy, is it lawful to heal this man on the Sabbath? He says, so that they might accuse him. And he said to them, puts it back in their court, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. So we see again the actions of Christ, our Sabbath rest, filled with mercy and compassion to this person. There was nothing in the law that said you couldn't heal somebody on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees and their traditions and their rules and their hedges had forbid even goodness. Even, you couldn't even keep the law on the Sabbath and being good to your neighbor and helping your neighbor in his need. All in the name of holiness. They had obliterated mercy from the presence of the people. So all the people could see His rules and regulations and they couldn't see love and compassion. And we juxtapose Jesus in this story with verse 14, we see the Pharisees. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against Him how to destroy Him. (laughs) They couldn't justify the healing of a man, but they could justify the plot to murder somebody on the Sabbath. Clear Hypocrisy coming from a heart that lacks mercy, a heart that lacks the love of God, and all they care about is rules and traditions and appearances and and appropriateness and piety. But they don't care about compassion because compassion doesn't always look pious. Love doesn't always look straight and orderly. Love can sometimes look like a mess. That's how relationships are, aren't they? They're usually a mess. Does that mean we didn't don't engage in them? Some of us are lonely on our own record. We're lonely because we don't want to get into a relationship where there's intimacy and transparency because then people might see who I really am and you know all the But when love abides, there's intimacy When people see the real you and the real struggles that you have, the people accept you, they bear one another's burdens, they don't condemn you because you answer to God, not to them. Ah, If only we could love like Jesus loved, there could be a church that looked like what God wants it to look like. You can't have transparency without love though, because if you have transparency without love, then what you get is gossip and slander and accusations and bickering. But if you have transparency with love, then you have mutual building and edification, needs being met, people being driven towards the kingdom. Oh, that's where the real work happens when there's love and compassion among God's people. But when that's not there, everything falls apart. You can't do anything for the kingdom because it all revolves around love and compassion, even the law. And I just want to conclude this by pointing you to the love of Jesus. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence For the day of judgment, because as He is, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. So when we come to the Scriptures, what are you looking for? Are you looking for more rules to follow? Sure, we, we do need to be concerned about living rightly before God. But if we have not love, nothing but a sounding brass. You have the piety and the, the zeal to be burned at the stake for Christ, but you have not love, your sacrifice is worthless. 1 Corinthians 13. We must start with love, otherwise everything else lacks a foundation because Christ is our cornerstone and everything that Christ did was rooted and established in the love and compassion of the Father. So if we will not follow Him in love and mercy and compassion, then we're not really following Him. When we strip His rules and His teachings from love, then what we get is a very pharisaical church that judges people by appearance, by outward appearance. That makes people look a certain way, talk a certain way, do certain things in order to be acceptable. But when you put love and the compassion in the rightful place, ah, then we can have a church that looks like Jesus. Then we can really be the body of Christ. You see that image, the body of Christ. We are the physical body of Christ. Doesn't it then follow that we should approach the world the way Jesus approached the world? Starting with love and the compassion of the Father. For Jesus did the Father's works, and the Father was made manifest in him. Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough. Philip was right in that. That if Jesus would just show us the Father, that would be enough. The thing Philip was missing was Jesus did show them the Father. And what he showed them was the love and the compassion and the mercy and the grace of the Father. What we're looking for is this glorious miraculous manifestation. When really all we really need to look at is the love of the Father and be content with that, let it be enough. The Lord is able to make us stand. Don't you concern yourself too much about the holiness of other people that you start believing that they are accountable to you. Be concerned about them in the relationship with God. Be concerned about them. Edify them. Build them up. Rebuke when necessary. But let's start with the establishment of the love and the compassion of Christ and let Him build His church. Starting with you in your heart. Me. In my heart. Let let it be enough to abide in Christ. And then let that abiding flow into everything else. Father, give us your love. Not that you haven't given it from yourself. Not that your light hasn't shone in the darkness. But Lord, as you bestow grace upon us. And as you sanctify us, Lord, let us love like Christ loved. Let us manifest the Son of God. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through him. And Lord, let us therefore manifest Jesus by the power of the Spirit, so that the people may see our good works and glorify the Father in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.